What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Challoner, and in each episode, I'm joined by a director, a CEO, a CFO, a government minister, a chairman, a president, and who knows, maybe one day, even the foreign secretary, since in the last couple of weeks, he's probably had the full experience of being prime minister after deputising for Boris Johnson as he continues his rehabilitation from COVID-19. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up every morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from virtual reality to positive business mentality, and of course, the success and innovation that makes it entirely worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Russ Lidstone, CEO of the Creative Engagement Group, a UK-based global communications group focused on engaging audiences through the creation and delivery of live experiences, films, digital and immersive experiences, employee engagement, learning, healthcare communications and training. Despite the group being established back in 2016, its respective companies, which include WRG, The Moment, Just Communicate and Axiom, to name but a few, have a combined heritage of over 50 years. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Russ Lidstone. Russ, welcome. It's great to have you on the programme today and thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Nice Nice to be here virtually. It's fantastic um, having you on the air, Russ. Now, um, you're, of course, um, a UK-based but fundamentally global communications group with more than 300 employees across the country. Tell me, with all that's going on with the COVID-19 outbreak at the moment, how has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been quite the challenge. Yeah, for every company, it's been a challenge. I think we, obviously, in the communications industry, have seen some significant changes uh, particularly on our live event side, we have a, a significant proportion of our business in, in live events. Mm. Um, but one of the things that we've had to do from our own business point of view is obviously move to a position where we've got nearly 400 people today uh, working remotely, um, navigating the platforms to make sure that we can not only work effectively together, but also deliver for our clients who work across a range of of different categories and as you say internationally time zones and so on so there's, there's been a lot uh, to do operationally to make sure that we are able to manage that workforce uh, remotely and for them all to be effective um, working remotely um, but then also to make sure that we're uh, evolving our offer to uh, deal with the challenges of, of COVID and uh, the implications of not being able to communicate in normal channels for uh, a number of our clients so it's been uh, it's been quite a time but uh, we've managed it effectively i'm delighted that we are uh, delivering a lot of very powerful communications programs for for our clients mm. and um and continue to work effectively as an organization across different time zones and, and as i say delivering internationally Absolutely. And I can imagine there's been uh, quite uh, the disruption for the um, global live meetings and events side of the business as well, with all of the disruption that the outbreak has caused. But I can imagine as well that that's also had a knock-on effect for the hybrid and virtual event side of the business and the consultancy side as well, hasn't it? 
that's right. Uh, I mean, as I say, a, a significant proportion of our business is in the live event space. Our, our group has a live event capability, which also includes environments, which is exhibitions or physical build, um, logistics, which is the management of delegate or consumer interaction with an experience. But alongside that, we have a big digital team, a film team, um, an employee engagement division, a scientific engagement division, because we have a lot of pharmaceutical uh, clients, and also a big learning and training division. In fact, we, we recently acquired a, a company in the digital learning space. So we have quite a broad spectrum of ways of engaging audiences, uh, hence the name, the Creative Engagement Group. Mm. The live event business, as you say, has, has been impacted significantly. Um, both, both here in the UK and internationally, of course. Uh, but one of the beauties of our group is that we have a very strong, what we call hybrid and virtual capability. So let me just explain that a little bit. That, that means that we are able to um, broadcast meetings um, to an in-person audience or remotely, i.e. an online audience, or in the case of virtual, just purely remote online audiences. And we have over... 10 years of experience in that space. We we deliver something like 500 virtual meetings every year on behalf of our clients. But of course, with COVID, that has uh, ramped up significantly. So a lot of the live event activity may be um, leadership meetings or brand launches or indeed activity in and around pharmaceutical congresses, for example, have moved into the virtual space. Mm. And uh, in fact, we've, we've, we had a 400-person meeting which we converted within four days into a virtual uh, meeting and, and using all our skills in the virtual space to be able to, to make that happen. So we've seen a significant uplift in, in virtual meetings, uh, but also virtual exhibitions and uh, events where people are used to going to some kind of physical experience, but now we've transferred that online. So that's been a real uh, growth area for us, uh, probably obviously in in the current circumstances. And for clients, what sort of benefits do hybrid and virtual events actually bring? Because I can imagine that it does allow, on one hand, greater audience involvement for one. Yes. I mean, I mean there are lots of myths around virtual meetings um, that, you know, they can be quite dull, uh, that it's a locked camera maybe on one speaker, that it's full of PowerPoint. But of course, that's the worst end of it. And that's not something that we advise our clients to do. Um, we, we have a number of principles around how we, how we create engaging virtual meetings um, and experiences. Um, and a lot of that is rooted in the content. So ultimately, you have to make the content more um, compelling for an online audience. Mm. You may need to create that in a more micro and blended way so that you know, it, 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 you're not sitting in front of a screen for, for too long where your concentration may start to, to wane. You need to create a fear of missing out. So you need compelling speakers or content or films that will punctuate uh, events. And also, you need to be able to accommodate different platforms because often the best way of creating a, a multifaceted online experience requires not just one technical platform, but sometimes a combination of platforms. So you need the, the digital experience as well. But the most compelling piece, I think, in terms of how to shape um, virtual meetings is what we call dialogue, not dictation. It's much more of a two-way interaction, funnily enough, um, online, um, and you need to open up to engagement. So 
one of the, the key principles for us is to create breakouts to allow utilize chat functions to enable feedback during the process. But so if you have those things, then you dispel some of the myths uh, of, of virtual meetings being dull um, and uh, soporific. The, the benefits of holding a virtual meeting, I mean, it, it goes without saying that at the moment, there's probably no other option. So clients have had to think about how to maybe transfer some of their activities into the virtual space. But there are significant advantages. And, and one of the things that we do often as uh, the Creative Engagement Group is combine live events with a hybrid or virtual capability. Because what you can do, of course, is it, it, it increase audience reach. You can expand uh, the reach often well, as, as, to a great degree, uh, as large as you want. Um, depending on your your internal or your external audience. So you can expand reach through uh, the virtual platforms. The second thing is that because it's online, you can extend the longevity of messaging. So you can have a a much longer sort of process of engaging people, maybe in bite-sized chunks over periods of time. And and that's a different way of thinking because you don't necessarily have a conference hall for 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever it is. You have the online platform, and it means that you can create those sort of bite-sized chunks of content, but ensure longevity of messaging through maybe film, maybe interaction, maybe polls, etc. But then you also have contemporary means of engaging audiences. So it may be those sort of tools that I've just described. Um, now with WebGL, you can create immersive experiences using technology to create effectively a product on screen. Of course, you can go further by um, using virtual reality, maybe sending out Google cardboard glasses or whatever, so that participants can engage in a physical experience, as it were, um, uh, uh, during the during the meeting or, or conference or whatever it is. So there's a whole range of different ways of engaging audiences through the platform. And then, of course, you can reduce time and cost. Um, we have uh, recently conducted a, a, a big event for a client where we, we effectively doubled the reach of their event, but also halved the cost. And then an additional factor, of course, which is something that we're all cognizant of today is sustainability. Um, it can be a more sustainable way of uh, reaching audiences. So there are many benefits to uh, virtual meetings, but where we see the, the future is that this, the benefits of this will combine with the, the benefits of face-to-face uh, where actually you, you know, there is no substitute for those water cooler moments or the ability to sit next to someone and and, and talk. So uh, in the future, I think we'll see a combination of these things. Yeah, it's a really important point that you make on uh, sustainability there. I know it's one thing that I know that your colleague, uh, Ben Atherton, foresees as well. Just for the benefit of the listeners, Ben Atherton is the group's global client engagement director. He believes there will be a renewed focus on sustainability within the industry going forward because um, as restrictions ease, there may not necessarily be the temptation to jump on planes and get straight back to live events because of the potential of virtual and hybrid engagements as well. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that we obviously take seriously as an industry um, and as well as uh, the creative engagement group as a business. Um, and I think there will be, as Ben pointed out in his, in his recent piece, a, a greater consideration of what meetings should happen face-to-face and how we can effectively get uh, audience participation and engagement but also how we can maybe move some of that into other areas. 
this isn't unusual for us because, um, I mean, I talked about hybrid meetings earlier. That's where you're effectively presenting to a live audience or maybe hubs of live audiences alongside remote uh, viewers or participants. And many of our events over the over recent years have effectively become hybrid anyway. They have enabled um, clients to uh, not only talk to a, a live audience in an auditorium or a conference center, um, but also to broadcast to and engage with an online audience or, or people in viewing hubs. So that's something that we've been considering a lot over over the recent years and, and delivering for a lot of our clients. But you're absolutely right. You're thinking about travel, uh, thinking about the sustainability of any kind of environment build, uh, carbon footprints are all things that should be at the forefront of uh, an event planner's mind, but also uh, increasingly important to our clients, of course. So we need to think from our own perspective, but also what's important to our clients and uh, and their broader point of view around sustainability. Absolutely. And I think um, it is um, essentially foreshadowing a real change in the way that um, not only we do business, but also um, changes in um, the, new, the events industry as well. I mean, I think Ben described it as what would be a new norm and the popularity of virtual platforms um, at the moment to maintain communication with everybody working remotely is only supporting that, isn't it? Yes. And there are many platforms. And, and as everyone listening to this will know, you know, there are a number of startups, uh, VC-backed uh, platforms originating almost on a, on a daily basis. For us, it's it's fundamental that not only can a platform do the job, but it's also critical from a compliance and security point of view that our clients don't simply move to a, a shiny new thing on the basis that it looks like it can deliver against a, a specific objective. There are lots to take on board in terms of not just one event, but, you know, continual activity in and around um, a particular event, but also security. And as we have we seen recently in some unfortunate instance for Zoom, I think it is, you know, mm. security is, is fundamental. And wherever, uh, whatever platform or whatever technology has become important to people, you, you can be pretty sure that, you know, hackers and guerrilla activity will follow. And, and that's what we're seeing. So, it's pretty fundamental that you have, um, as a client, a partner that understands the platforms, but also understands the regulatory environment, compliance requirements, and so on and so forth. So we're very lucky because we have not only clients in the tech space, but also in pharma, um, in engineering, industrial, and uh, financial services, professional services. And for all of those clients, the, the security, I mean, for any client, security is important. But particularly if you're talking about you know, a pharmaceutical product, uh, maybe at a launch stage or in the development stages, it's fundamental that you're able to ensure that not only the content, but also the platform is absolutely robust. Absolutely right. And you can see essentially just how um, cyber criminals are looking to tap into the uh, the pandemic as well, because I think Google um, announced uh, recently they were blocking something like 100 million phishing emails a day on their Gmails um, just to try and uh, stop hackers from trying to cash in on the pandemic as well. And that's just one example of how important security is um, and how um, it has to essentially move with the times. Um, if we do think about some um, sort of regulations um, in uh, from a little bit of a different angle, though, Rusk, um, going forward from 
here. Throughout all of this, um, of course, the government has announced a lot of measures to safeguard businesses, but at the same time, they are preventing a great many of them from performing their functions with the UK lockdown measures. Um, do you personally think that they are doing the right things at present and indeed the job retention scheme is working effectively? Yeah, I mean, we we have, uh, I'm not sure benefited is the right word, but we have been supported um, by the UK government job retention scheme. And, and interestingly for a business, that you know, we have a significant number of people in the US. Um, whilst there has been some support on an individual and small company basis in the US, there isn't a comparable scheme uh, for our, our business in the US. We look at our company in the round. So, you know, we look at one P&L. And we, we consider the UK and US as one company, which, of course, from a P&L point of view, it is. But we have benefited from the support of the job retention scheme. We have a number of people on, on furlough who just don't have the work right now uh, to, to do, you know, particularly in the, in the live event space, as we've talked about earlier. So I, I think that has been um, a really great support, and I'm, I'm, I'm hugely appreciative we, we as a company are hugely appreciative of that commitment of, of the UK government um, to to support business in that way um, I, I won't get into the politics of it but I, but I think that right now a lockdown is uh, really important and we recognize that um, I think the, the judgment around when we as as a country and when businesses will be able to emerge clearly needs to respect uh, the scientific advice. And I don't think we would uh, want to challenge any of that. I think having a sense of how we might emerge and how we will emerge, um, and I know there's a lot more conjecture around this um, in the media right now and, and, and some politicians talking about it, some members of the government talking about it, whether it's a plan or principles of a plan, what does that look like? Clearly, we're not in a position to be doing that yet until the curve is, is thoroughly flattened. Um, and whilst lives are you know, still very sadly um, being lost at such, a, at such a degree, it would be helpful, I think, to have some sense of what, what emerging from this uh, looks like. As a business, we've started, we have a very strong health and safety team that not only uh, work on behalf of our clients, you know, in and around uh, events or film shoots, um, as examples. But they also think carefully about our operation, our business, um, whether it's in the offices or when now we're working remotely. And we've started to look at what re-emerging looks like um, and, and have started to assume that there may be some kind of phase return, but that's at the very early stages. So, um, you know, we, we're sort of starting to try and take our own lead on thinking about how we would return to some sense of normality. Absolutely. And when we do start to see a return to normality, um, I imagine that the uh, Digital Culture Media Secretary is going to have them quite a lot on their plate because I know that when Nicky Morgan was appointed, a particular concern for yourself was the very high turnover in DCMS secretaries over the last uh, 10 years. Um, what would you like to see um, Nicky Morgan prioritise going forward following this pandemic? Well, I think that uh, recognition of the role of um, the creative industry um, is, is pretty fundamental. And you know, you'll have the, the statistics, but, I, but I, I think it's one in 11 jobs. I think it's over 100 billion um, contributions to the UK economy. Um, and, and I think that whether it's film 
production, TV broadcast, which is, is not something that we do, uh, but whether it's digital uh, agencies, whether it's um, live event businesses, the value and the role of the creative industries to the UK economy, I think is much more significant than many other countries. I think it often gets overlooked um, in relation to maybe uh, more symbolic industries. Uh, and, and I, you know, I come from a, a fishing town uh, in South Devon. Uh, I, I value massively the role that fishing plays in the UK economy and the importance of it to certain towns like my, my old hometown. Um, but in terms of the economic significance of the creative industries, um, you know, the, the role that someone like Nikki can play is to, is to make sure that it is well represented when we're thinking about how to support businesses coming out of uh, these challenging times. But also, I think more broadly, uh, thinking about how to strengthen the recognition around the importance of this. And I, and I think, you know, there's some really interesting articles over the weekend about TV production and, and the pipeline of what we're all enjoying right now uh, because we're sitting down as families often uh, or individuals watching box sets, watching amazing content, whether it's from the BBC or ITV or, or indeed Netflix and Sky. But because of this breakdown, we, you know, the, the challenge we face now, that, that pipeline is going to get, is going to really dry up. Mm. So, so I think there's a broader point about the creative industry. I think there is a significant um, uh, piece to be done around freelance. You know, a lot of industries, such as live events, um, but also film production, and a, a lot of other areas are heavily dependent on, on a freelance community. And of course, they've been significantly affected by um, the, the COVID situation that we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. So I think, I do think there's a, a piece around uh, the, the industry itself um, and recognition of its value to the economy. I think the support for businesses that are crucial to the culture um, as well as the economy um, is, is going to be important. And I think recognition of the, the way that people work and the degree to which, as I say, freelancers or consultants are key to industry, uh, but may not necessarily be um, being picked up in the, in the safety net that um, you know, maybe furlough, the furlough scheme has been able to, to for, um, uh, for permanent employees. Absolutely. Recognising uh, the value of uh, the freelance and the self-employed uh, community indeed is uh, so, so important uh, going forward. Um, the reason I asked those um, sort of last couple of questions, Russ, is because um, this podcast, of course, is all about uh, the topic of leadership as well and really bringing that into focus. Um, one thing I did want to understand as well is um, what that word leader actually means to you as an individual. Well, <coughs> leadership to me is uh, it's about setting a course and a vision uh, for a business or a group of people. Um, and we have a, you know, a business is predicated. I mean, we are a human capital business. I don't like that phrase, but the majority of our cost, the ma all of our talent, you know, we don't have necessarily widgets. Yes, we understand digital platforms. And yes, we understand some of the technologies around the things that we do. And we are very talented in that, but ultimately it's the people. Um, and and we, so for us, for me as a leader, it's about, um, yes, it's about leadership, but I would use the phrase followership. For me, mm. it's about taking people with you, engaging with them, helping them to understand what we as a company are trying to do, or indeed in the, in the current situation, what 
how we are coping with and dealing with uh, the COVID-19 um, crisis. One of the phrases that's really important to me as a leader is working with the creative engagement group, not for the creative engagement group. And, and there's a big semantic point there, but, but I think philosophically, hope, hopefully you get the flavor. We, for me, no one is more important than anyone else in, in the business. We, we are a combination. We are a team of people that combine our skills, experiences, and capabilities to deliver what I think is a world-class product and what I know is a world-class product for um, a range of clients. And it's really important to me that it, this is a team sport. So in many ways, as someone who grew up playing team sport who, who still believes that to be really fundamental and important to uh, well-being, you know, as, as alongside you know, individual sporting pursuits, but really important to understand how to play and respect each other. Um, and so I think the value of a leader, particularly in these times, is to what I would call lead from the back. Um, you know, I, I am able to benefit massively from the team of people around me. I am able to coach them to a degree, but I am also able to direct them. But I, 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 I lead them benefiting from the skills and expertise that they have. I cannot do what they do, and I don't pretend to do what they do. I understand what they do, and I understand the value of it to our clients. But for me, you know, I, I am, I am uh, the backup and the support to the real people who make the difference, which is our, our operational team. The, so I think uh, leadership from the back is important. I think working with, not for, that for me, that is really fundamental. I absolutely don't believe that command and control is the right method of leadership in, in today's business world. I think it's much more about connecting and collaborating. And so that's my my style. One of the things that we've been doing a lot over the last five weeks is trying to ensure that we maintain our transparency as a business, that we continue to engage people um, in our teams. And that, that becomes even more important, I think, when you have you know, some of your team out on furlough, on furlough status. They're not working and they can't work. But what they can do is be kept in touch with the with the business. They can be made aware of the things that I'm thinking about or that we're thinking about. And for me, therefore, communication becomes key. We are, I believe, in over-communicating. Um, I don't think that a group of people of 400-odd um, benefits from um, a lack of communication. I think that in, in the absence of information, uh, particularly right now in a crisis, people will start to assume things or um, you know, conspiracy theories arise. And so I think a regularity of communication, transparency of communication. And for me, fundamental to this is um, a balance of rationality and, and, and fact alongside empathy. People, I think, benefit, yeah, I, I, I include myself in this, from knowing that we are all in this together, that we are going through our own challenges individually, um, that this is unusual. <laughs> None of us have lived through anything like this uh, before. Yes, we've lived through recessions or run businesses through recessions, but this is, this is different. So I think a balance of empathy alongside here's the direction we're taking and here is... Um, uh, a rational point of view about where we sit as a business is, is pretty fundamental. But for me, it's, it's how to corral that combination of wonderful skills and people um, so that not only do we stay together strong and intact through this process, 
and this, this, this period, but also that we can emerge um, strong and ready to uh, continue our growth trajectory when we when we come out the other side. Absolutely. And um, I think it's so important uh, reminding people that it is very much a team game being a business leader. And it's very much about surrounding yourself with individuals who you can get the best out of, but also they can nurture the best out of you as well. And it's often said that these are unprecedented times that we're in, but times of difficulty do often bring the best out in people too. Um, What would you say, Russ, is the greatest thing that you've actually learned from this current time of crisis? Well, I think, firstly, how proud I am of our team. And that's obviously a very personal reflection. Um, I, I, it's easy to uh, comes out with, come out with um, rather the blase statements uh, sometimes about company cultures um, and organizations. But one of the things that I've, I heard you know, many years ago was that um, company cultures are great. And they're really, really important. Uh, but they're actually quite easy in some senses to uh, cultivate during the, during the good times. Mm. And, you know, we, we as a business have had some really good times. We've grown significantly. Uh, we've evolved. We've acquired new capabilities. We've grown in the U.S. We've strengthened our relationships with our client partners. Um, we've added hundreds of people into the business, et cetera, et cetera. So the last four years or so have been quite an extraordinary journey for uh, for our business and, our, and the people in it. And through no fault of our own, and like many of the people listening to this and the businesses that you, know, you, that you would speak to on a regular basis, through no fault of our own, we find ourselves in a, in a challenging situation. But now is the time when culture becomes possibly more important and actually is evidenced to a greater degree. It's, it's easy in some senses to talk about the importance of it during the good times, but right now is where it's, it's evidenced. And I think, um, again, a, a friend of mine that used to, uh, I, think he, I think he used to be a bit of a boxer, but he, he said that um, you know, the idea of being tough is not how many punches you give out; it's how many punches you can soak up. Mm. And I think that what what we what I'm evident, uh, witnessing right now is the strength and resilience of uh, of our team to go through this process, uh, this period, and to uh, continue to retain a sense of optimism and commitment to how we're going to how we're going to come out of this, alongside delivering, you know, as we said earlier. You know, fantastic virtual events, continuing to build wonderful digital tools, immersive experiences, um, delivering em- employee engagement programs, uh, provide scientific content training and engagement for a lot of our pharmaceutical clients, and continue to help train and workforces learn through this process. And I think that um, we've been lucky to be able to not only construct our, our business, in, in a way that gives us options and gives our clients options. So, you know, another thing that I've learned is it's easy to talk about the theory of it, but our business is, is continuing to perform on the basis that we have a very strong hybrid and virtual capability. We've added a, you know, a, a, an employee engagement um, division a couple of years ago that is now great, going great guns. You know, engaging employees, training them, um, educating people, those are fundamentals to businesses uh, that, that don't go away. And in fact, you could argue that during the lockdown, they've become more important 
as we've just been discussing, how to engage mm. your employees remotely is an absolutely critical to critical question for organizations and CEOs of big organizations of thousands of people across the world. How do you do that? Um, how do you train them? How do you use this as an opportunity uh, to actually say, well, you've got your workforce. Some of them are not necessarily um, as, as active or um, uh, as utilized as maybe they, they might have been in, the, in, in normal times. How do we make sure that they're trained or learning new skills or disciplines or reinforcing things that they should know so that when we emerge, they are not only fit, uh, for, for continued activity, but actually maybe more advanced than they were when they when they came into it. Um, big pharmaceutical companies have a continuing requirement to uh, train and educate their workforce, particularly sales teams as they're launching new products and services. So that for us um, is, a, is a really resilient part of our business. So the uh, the ability to, dare I say, pivot into areas of growth through um, a, a, a diverse range of services has been a real uh, demonstration that you need to continue as a leader to attack your own business. You need to ask questions and say, where is the opportunity? How do we grow going forward? Where do we think there is a, maybe a new strategic opportunity? And that's what we've done with uh, our training and learning capability. So we knew that that was an important and growing area. We knew that actually learning is quite a dry and corporate learning can be quite dry and dusty. Many of us have sat on quite um, soporific uh, uh, courses with sort of click next PowerPoint uh, training modules. And you know how um, dispiriting or unengaging that is. But actually future focused learning teams, uh, learning design combined with technology, combined with film, com combined with new ways of engaging audiences is a really interesting place. So that's why uh, we acquired Logic Earth a couple of weeks ago, and that adds to our capabilities and, and continues to um, help us evolve as a business, but also makes us future fit. And I think the ability to, to think about the broader business, have different facets to it, is a real um, embodiment of, I think, good theory, um, but it's really being borne out now. And there's a lot of thought-provoking stuff that you mentioned there, but I quite liked um, the points that you made about learning and uh, resilience as well, because I think the experience of employees and business leaders um, of facing difficulties during this time and being pushed from their comfort zones is hugely important for one's development, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it, we talk a lot, don't we, I think, um, in business and as leaders about personal growth. And... You know, growth comes from new experiences. It, it can be obviously facilitated through more formal training. Um, but the, the reason why I, I love uh, the business, the creative engagement group and the areas we're in is because we're constantly asking that question, where can we go? Now, that, of course, is you developing and evolving your own thinking about uh, creating a sustainable business, about how to grow, how to ensure that your your team has personal growth. And again, I think that's a really important aspect of, of leadership. I think people, yes, the fundamentals like pay and benefits are important. Of course they are. But actually, people stay with you because of their own personal growth, their own opportunities, their ability to develop um, uh, alongside a belief in culture um, and, and uh, uh, an engagement in it. So I 
as, as a leader, I think there's a, an important role to play in terms of facilitating that personal growth. And, and Logic Earth, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm one of the leaders in terms of thinking about that blended micro learning and, and helping companies to think about um, everything from compliance through to capability to remaining remaining connected, which are all really key um, in, in any organization, more than two people probably. So that's important. But then you've got extraneous factors, and, and this is probably the most acute or extreme that any of us have ever uh, experience. Yes, there was 2008. Yes, there have been recessions. Yes, of course, um, political and economic uh, reverberations from things like 9-11. But, but for the whole world to be experiencing something of this nature, a global pandemic, at the same time um, is clearly uh, super extraordinary. Uh, and, and it's at that time where there isn't a rule book there isn't a uh, way of kind of being able to look up how do you approach a global pandemic as a business, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it, where you you really are, I think, as leaders, um, but any you know a senior person within a, within a business, uh, tested to think about how to evolve your thinking, how to react. Um, you know, it, it is it is a bit like a and sorry to use another sporting sort of analogy, but you know, it's it's game of football. You can be playing really well on the pitch yourself, but of course, you need to take account of the of the opposition. Mm. And right now, the opposition is a major extraneous factor which none of us uh, kind of could have possibly anticipated. Um, and so, how we react to that is is not only academically interesting, but it's critical to the success and health. Of, of sustainable businesses and, and the UK economy and, and obviously the global economy. It certainly leaves our business leaders with a lot to ponder and it's important as well to recognise that everybody is human and everybody has limitations and is ultimately fallible because I think a lot of business leaders can often be under a little bit of pressure in thinking that they have to come up with all of the answers all of the time and that's not necessarily the case because leaders will be trying things, they will be getting things wrong sometimes, and they will also be learning from that as well. And maybe the younger generations of emerging leaders should be told to be willing to learn and embrace their failings rather than shying away from that and not take calculated risks. Yes, and I, and I think one of the things that I talk to, I, mean, I do a fair amount of, of mentoring, um, and, and one of the things I, I talk to mentees about, but it's one of my beliefs, is that um, there isn't one, there isn't always one right answer. There are many right approaches. Mm. And, you know, we can see that today, can't we? The way that different people are approaching, or different countries are even approaching this pandemic. You know, now, with hindsight, maybe you can say, well, some took the wrong approach, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. Exactly. And, clearly needs to be guided by the science and so on and so forth. But at the outset of this, how do you approach a global pandemic? What do you do? Yes, there were guidelines. Yes, there were obviously great um, pieces done by the World Health Organization and so on and so forth. And, and that's one extreme example. But I do think as a leader of a business, particularly um, a business like ours, which is, as I say, you know, it's about the people, I think people look to you for guidance and direction and that's certainly what I think leaders do but as I say I don't think it's a command and control I think I think it's much more about connecting and collaborating and I think it's also explaining your thinking I don't think you know uh, anyone can criticize a leader for saying this is what I'm doing and why um, 
if it's explained, if it's spelled out, and, and ultimately people know that a leader's role is to try and provide that direction, strategic direction, take action. Um, and as, as I said earlier, I think one of the, the important tenets of being a good model leader, in my opinion, is transparency and explanation. Alongside empathy, <clears throat> I think one of the things that uh, leaders can often, and you know, we've all had experiences of this, is to not think about your audience, not put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're talking to at whatever level. And I think that communication and understanding or empathy is a time-consuming part of leadership. And I think it's an easy bit to not think about. But for me, it's really important to get that right um, because you're setting, the, you're setting the tone, you're setting the direction, um, but also you're reflecting the culture, as I described earlier, of, of with, not for. Uh, and, and for me, that's, that's really important. But I do think you're right. In a way, I think right now is an unusual time, of course. There will be some mistakes made, but I think mistakes are maybe more understood and, and maybe even permissible if you've explained why you're, you're, you're taking the decisions um, that you have. And certainly one of the things that I would reflect on over the last four or five weeks, certainly through lockdown, is the regularity of communication, transparency of that, um, taking the time to think about your, your internal audiences and your, your, your key stakeholders is, is respected and it, and it provides um, value and stability um, and, and um, engagement. And ultimately, you know, this is a, an organic thing, a business, and uh, it's, it's a living organism. And, and the people within it, um, if they're pulling in the same direction, will inevitably be stronger in terms of what they deliver now, but also when we come out the other side. And I think if anybody is about to start their first day in a leadership role and embark on that journey, I think uh, they do very, very well to heed those words, Russ, absolutely. Um, If we do look to the future, before we do go about wrapping things up on today's programme, do tell me what you believe the next 12 months hold for yourself and for the Creative Engagement Group and what you really hope to achieve in that time coming out of the other side of this pandemic. Well, I think... But, the, you know, it, on, on some levels, it's a, it's a bit like uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've got a base need, which is I want our business to uh, retain. Uh, we are going to do everything we can to um, uh, hold our employees. We, we don't want to make redundancies. We, we want to keep the business together. Um, and I have, a, you know, a personal desire to do that. As a business, we have a, 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 a desire do that and I, I hope and believe that we can come out of this ready to, to push on again but of course there's going to be a gradual re-emergence as we talked about earlier so I think how uh, how we evolve uh, out of this um, what kind of phase return looks like from an operational or organizational point of view is, is going to be key and at the heart of that as a business our, the well-being of our team is is paramount, and we will not want to do anything um, that puts our team at risk or make them feel that they're at risk. So, you know, my base need is to have everyone come out of this uh, healthy, um, and I hope that our team's you know, relatives, loved ones, friends uh, remain healthy. I, I know that may not be possible when you're talking about 400 people across the world. Um, but that's that's my absolute focus is to try and make sure that we're focused on the well-being and health of our team and that they come out of this okay. Um, that the business 
remains, you know, as is, and that we're able to kind of punch out of this um, and reemerge in a way that um, enables us to continue on our, our current trajectory um, of growth, but also of innovation. So, you know, the, the acquisition and the addition of Logic Earth alongside our 41 employee engagement division, Axiom, our scientific engagement division, WRG, our events business, the moment our digital film and immersive um, capability and just communicate our pharmaceutical um, events and exhibitions business. We, we as a group, you know, we, we want to um, continue to evolve. And that means um, vertical and horizontal, horizontal integration. It means bringing new skills into the existing team. Um, and it means also looking to the future and adding capabilities, either organically by starting to grow it ourselves or maybe through um, partnership and or acquisition. Um, we, we represent something very unusual in the uh, UK creative industry um, and, and event space. That combination of services I've just described you know, with the addition of Logic Earth makes us really unusual. And for me, coming out of this in some kind of phase uh, return will mean that we we'll probably need to focus on some areas like training, uh, like scientific engagement, like employee engagement in the first instance to really um, evolve uh, that offer, but also to, to provide clients what they're going to need at that point in time to really continue to support the, our clients from a hybrid and virtual uh, meeting and um, events point of view, which is growing in importance. And then as uh, maybe the lockdown starts to recede and uh, distancing starts to, you know, policies around that start to change, that we continue to um, uh, invest and grow our live events and environments business because we are, you know, one of the leaders in that space. So the next few few months and, and um, a year looks like, you know, none of us know, we don't have the crystal ball. I hope that the team stay healthy. That's my primary concern that we, that we, retain the integrity of our business and that we come out ready to uh, take on all comers again and, and uh, you know, be the best of British business, which uh, I think is is <clears throat> what we are and can continue to be. Mm, I have to say, Russ, um, it's been an absolute pleasure and also incredibly insightful having you on uh, today's programme. And following what you've said there, I think it would actually be fantastic for the listeners if we did have you back on the programme in a few months' time, just to look at what we've said retrospectively and just see how things have played out and look at how the business is doing. But for now, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak to me and share your views with the listeners. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Russ. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Russ and of course learning more about how the whole team at the Creative Engagement Group is continuing to raise standards even throughout this challenging time. Next upon the programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett, an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and of course the Chairman of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanca. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure listening to and learning from our guests. I and Matthew hope you enjoyed listening. Until next time, since sadly all of the pubs are still closed, Matthew and I will be sitting in our respective front rooms with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms very soon. Remember, look after yourselves, stay at home, save lives. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.